I've noticed a trend in myself over the years, and I couldn't really tell you why, but I apparently really like stories that are subversions. By which I mean a story that subverts expectations or the typical thing or whatever. Now, I don't really have a good reason why. In fact, I'm not even sure like if I could say that definitively. I've just noticed over the years that I tend to like stories that are subversive stories. You know, it's just, oh, okay, that's cool, you know. And this is a subversive story right here. This is pretty much taking what you would completely expect from a Star Trek episode and then doing the opposite. I mean, I've seen Iborg, haven't you? Well, maybe you haven't. <laughs> My point being, though, I feel like this episode did several things very smart. The first and most obvious thing that this episode does that's smart is it showcases the villain without the normal men the normal way you showcase a villain. Let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. They pretty much just introduced the Dominion. They did that in Jem'Hadar, and then they had them kind of show back up again in The Search Part 1 and 2. The thing is, if you're going to have a recurring villain, and it's a typical interaction, in other words, basically a fight, there are only two options. They win, or they lose. Now, there's gradients on that, but... If, for example, the Jem'Hadar were to show up again, and we were to fight them and win, then they lose some of their impact. See Star Trek Voyager and the Borg for a good example of this. If they show up and we lose, well, okay, that makes sense. But after a certain point, if you make an enemy too strong, then it becomes to get ludicrous when we actually do win. See Star Trek Voyager and the Borg for a good example of this. Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist that one. So my point being, if you're going to keep do using a, a villain, an enemy, a force, a nation, whatever it happens to be, you have to do something with it. And this was a good choice. Now, to show that I'm not just hating Voyager or anything like that, Voyager actually did do some very good stuff with the Borg. Legitimately. They did some bad stuff and they did some awful stuff, but there's some good stuff too. And in my opinion, most of the good stuff they did on Voyager was where they didn't just have a versus situation. Where there was the Borg and then we learned about them or we adapted to them, ironically, or we uh, saw some more of their history or how they function or, or something, right? They were part of the story, but they were not the villains of the story per se. And that's kind of what we do here we see pretty much, the, this is our first real insight into how the Jem'Hadar actually operate. Before, all we've seen is goons and ships. They might as well be stormtroopers for how they've been presented thus far. However, this shows us what it's like from the ground level. And, well, it shows that there's no real peace possible, at least at the surface level, between the Jem'Hadar and everyone else. Because the Jem'Hadar are so programmed and so designed that the only possible way any Jem'Hadar could ever break from their programming is if they had a long enough life to have a weird form of droid effect take place. In other words, enough development of their intellect and their experiences and their personality so that eventually they are able to push the boundaries of that programming. This is something we will actually see in the future. But for a fresh new Jem'Hadar like this, nah, there's no chance. And I do like that. I also like, uh, I like how this expounds on the threat of the Jem'Hadar. They pull out a baby, and this baby is a full-grown, fighting, capable warrior who can take on level whatever, we don't know what he was up to in the computer program, with relative ease. 
and his shroud is already functional. And this is something that happened within a matter of days. Unlike the super mega we can do everything thing I, I mentioned being irritated by back in the Jem'Hadar, this helps to show another one of the real true advantages of the Dominion. They have craftable troops that they can make very quickly. In other words, they can replenish losses at a rate that basically no one else can really match, within reason, obviously. And that is damned impressive, and that is a huge advantage. That does not necessarily guarantee them victory, it's just a huge advantage. I mean, the CIS had that same advantage, it didn't go well for them, did it? Although, I know that's not really the same situation. So let's talk about, before we keep talking about that, let's shift topics over to the B-plot. So Jake's dating a Dabo girl. I mean, that's just terrible, right? I mean, why would you ever want your child to be interacting with such a degenerate and disgusting disease? Okay, if it's not obvious right now, I'm being sardonic to make a point. Because the one connecting theme in this episode is people's natures versus how they appear to be. Usually, like in, in all fiction, but especially in Star Trek, they do a don't judge a book by its cover kind of a thing. But it is worth noting, especially in real life, that every now and again, not all the time, but every now and again, there's a situation where you can make a reasonable judgment on someone based on their cover. Um, not necessarily saying that someone who's dressed like in rags and tatters is a bum, but how they handle themselves, how they work, how they move, how they speak, how they interact, all these things can give you insights into the kind of person you're looking at. Right? Make sense? Thus we see that the Jem'Hadar boy is a Jem'Hadar boy. And Marta is a Bajoran woman who's making the best of a horrible life. Now, funnily enough, and I didn't actually know this before, Chase Masterson was originally supposed to play Marta. I'm kind of glad she didn't. Um, partially because the role of Marta only shows up like two or three more times in the entire rest of the series. I, I keep telling you, they have this thing against recurring characters. It's so weird. And we see a lot more of Chase Masterson in the future, so yay. But um, the other reason I, I think this works better this way is because I feel like the woman here, who I didn't write her down in her name, please forgive me, uh, does a, a pretty good job of portraying someone who, let's just say that she has some baggage, very understandably, and manages to get that across very understandably. In other words... There's this bit where she says, it's amazing how people will judge you just based on your job. The thing is, that statement, again, is true most of the time. But there's always that outlier, right? If you are a, have a job of professional assassin, there's a pretty good chance that people are going to judge you for that and probably have at least some good reason to do so. It's, it's, again, this goes back to that book cover thing I mentioned earlier. Every now and again, you can actually get a good picture of someone. And a Dabo girl's literal purpose, and let's just say this as bluntly as we can, is to be physically attractive looking and acting in order to distract people, in order to basically make sure that they don't, that they lose as much of their money as they can at a gambling establishment. Now, this is no, there's no shaming here. I want to make that very clear. Um, I, for those of you not aware, my family has lived in and around Las Vegas for some time. For, for four generations going back at this point. And uh, 
there's maybe it's three generations. I, I'm, no, it's four. It's four. That's right. She started off there. Uh, she moved there, and then everyone else kind of moved there, and just it just kind of became our normal place to end up at. Like most of my family just en- <clears throat> ends up in Vegas after they get to a certain point in their life. It's weird. But my point being, as a consequence, I have been to Vegas many, many times to visit family. Now, I mention this because one of the most common things that has been true for all, all the years I've been, including the most recent, which was just a couple years ago, is that there are women there in very tight corsets, which look incredibly uncomfortable, specifically designed to shove their chests up and out as much as possible, again, very uncomfortable looking, and they're running around giving out drinks and trying to distract people and blah, blah, blah. It is a normal job thing. Shame is not a part of this. I want to re-stress that point, because this is such an iffy topic. I myself am a hell of a prude, and I admit that freely and without any personal shame or guilt in the matter. But I also do not judge any of those women for taking those jobs, because those jobs pay reasonably well depending on the casino, and in some cases it may be the only job you can get. It's also worth noting, and I know this sounds weird, but let's just say they don't... uh, How do I want to phrase this? They don't just hire Barbie dolls for that kind of job. That's how I want to say that. Because I don't want to say they hire uh, unattractive women as well, because that's obviously a, a misleading statement. But they don't demand you have a certain body type. That's what I mean. So plenty of people can get jobs like that, and that can work out. Now, whether that's good or bad, that's a matter of opinion and something I'm not even willing to touch on. But my point is, Looking at one of those girls and judging them based solely on that fact is, is something that I, in this circumstance, in this case, with these, with these situations and variables, is something I am not willing to do. If anything, I would probably find myself more positively inclined towards them because I've known a few women who have done that as, as a job and other similar jobs like that, and they've been pretty nice people overall, with one notable exception. I bring up all of this because that's pretty much the only major point they have with the second little story arc with Jake and Marta. Although they keep disagreeing on how to pronounce it. Apparently they actually wrote it in the script differently. So there's a Marta and there's a Marda. And they're both spelled relatively differently. So if I screw up, that's why. Now, what I find funniest about that is there's some actual potential there for some interesting storytelling past the she's a Dabo girl problem. In fact, there's two parts of that. They don't even bring up the age gap at all. She is four years older than him, which is a pretty significant age gap in that range of life, right? Like, that's a little bit on the unusual side when you're that young. Four years between someone who's 80 and 84 isn't as significant because percentage-wise it is less than the life. That's, that's why that concept exists, for anybody wondering. You know, so nobody brings that up, really, except for a brief mention by Cisco. And the other thing that I find far more interesting to talk about is the fact that Cisco is someone who should be judged based on his job. Not, not Jake, although Jake does get associative judgment because Jake is the son of the leader of the local space station. And, let's be honest, functionally is the local military head, with the only possible rival to that being his first officer, Major Kira. So... <laughs> I look at this situation and I find myself astonished that they didn't do more about the idea that the reason Jake was so hesitant about doing this and Marta was so uneasy about going, which is something she isn't, but you know, make her uneasy about going is because she has to go meet, she's dating the son of the leader of the area. He could do so much to make her life hell in quiet and subtle ways, never mind the more overt ways, if he really wanted to, if he didn't approve of her, right? 
Rather than have her just kind of have that line about, well, my life is hell, which, fair enough, she's a Bajoran. Most Bajorans who are currently alive have had a hellish life. And uh, so rather than just have, you know, well, my life is hell, and people just judge me based on thing, you know, that irritates me a little bit because it gets comes across as just a little bit too preachy. It's basically, it's your typical sitcom thing. Let's set up this situation where A is supposed to happen. Ah, oh, now it's and now it's B. And I know that sounds like a subversion, and it totally is. But it's a subversion which is a constructed scenario rather than a subversion that flows naturally or or, or moves in any kind of way that makes sense. In other words. One of the things that Star Trek canon has done, and Star Trek is not alone in this, is constructs an entire situation which, which under these very specific circumstances, makes X right or wrong, depending on what, what message is trying to be gotten across. And it just comes across as so ham-fisted, right? And that's what I feel here. Don't judge a book by its cover. You got anything else episode? No, you don't, which is my point. Wouldn't it be more interesting if she was like, afraid of this. Maybe she wants to break it up with Jake because she doesn't want to endanger her job, which is the first real job she's gotten since the end of the occupation. She's been living hand-to-mouth, uh, subsisting off of what she could get off of her family and friends, and now finally she can actually afford to have her own place and her own system and her own life, and now she's dating the son of the leader of the station, and he's from Starfleet. We know how uptight those Federation people are. He's not going to approve of me dating his son. He's going to try and kick me right out. And even assuming he doesn't just try to break us up, he might actually try to push me out of my position entirely. Or he, he could actually kick me off the station. He's got the clout to do that. And you can see how there's so much more potential for storytelling here that they just kind of leave on the floor. <sighs> so, back to the main plot. <clears throat> I'm going to be referring to the Jem'Hadar as Dukan Rex. Some of you understand why I'm doing that. But for those of you who don't, his only official credit or title is... Teenage Jem'Hadar boy, and I don't feel like saying that, or the Jem'Hadar the whole time, so I'm just going to call him Dukan Rex. Dukan Rex uh, is kind of probably one of the best overall slices of just how messed up the Founders are that we ever really get. He is so programmed to follow the Founders under basically any circumstances, and he knows that you are superior to me and I am superior to them. And if you say something, you must be right, even if what you say is wrong, because I am, I know this, I know this to be utterly, it is so built into them. It wouldn't surprise me if the founders had built layers of this into the genetic code of the Jem'Hadar. Layers upon layers of, you must obey, you must obey, you must obey. One of the things that's also true and interesting about the Founders, and we will discuss this more in the future, is they seem to see no real purpose in anything that is not de its purpose. I know that sounds stupid. Let me try this. Let me try the sentence a different way. If they need a hammer, they will build a block attached to a handle and nothing else. There will be no additional accruements, no additional functionality, no any, any purpose whatsoever. It exists to smash something down and nothing else. Everything else, even though they have the power to design those things, even though they have the power to build a tool that can do 50 things at once if they wanted to, that's not what they want. They want a tool that does one thing. The biggest and most obvious examples of this are the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta, and we will talk about both in the future. But this is the big emphasis on the Jem'Hadar's design. They fight, 
they kill, and they have a very strong tribal mentality. We are the Jem'Hadar, the Jem'Hadar for the Jem'Hadar, 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 Jem'Hadar. And the Jem'Hadar are subservient to the founders, which makes it funny considering the Vorta are the actual middle managers of the Dominion, but they follow the founders, they revere the founders, they worship the founders, etc., etc. And that is basically it. That's as far as they go. This is also the first episode to introduce Ketchisel White. They don't name it in this episode, but that is what it is. The idea of the the dependency drug, which they literally need and or else they die. One thing I find interesting, given the ridiculous amount of genetic mastery that the founders have, why doesn't lack of Ketrasol White kill them much quicker than it does? Now, I don't mean to spoil future episodes, but we do know, we, we get a lot of information about exactly what Ketracel White deficiency does to the Jem'Hadar. And it does not kill them quickly, and it does not uh, kill them mercifully. They basically descend into mind-numbing rage and violence until their brains, quite literally, chemically can no longer function. Uh, anybody who's ever played Oblivion, you know how in that particular, uh, the, the particular vampires in that setting, the longer they go without blood, without feeding, the more they descend into rabid animals. Now, they actually get stronger, too, but that's an unrelated thing. The point being, that's kind of the same thing that Jem'Hadar go through. By the time a Jem'Hadar is sufficiently gone from Kitchasol White deficiency, there's actually no saving that Jem'Hadar. It is just a raving animal, which is trying to kill and destroy everything nearby. Now... I understand using the white as a control mechanism. It's messed up, but I understand it. Why not design it so that their body just shuts down rather than... And why not make it happen so much quicker? Imagine for a moment that something goes wrong, anything goes wrong in the supply chain, and you have an entire fleet of Jem'Hadar that you can't get Ketracel White to for a few days. That is a nightmare scenario, right? Uh, Anyways... We'll talk more about Ketrasol White in the future. Uh, let's talk about Quark really quick. Now, Quark does something very stupid in this episode. And the episode actually hints at it, too, because we've got random rich alien who's watching Marta and her incredibly uncomfortable-looking outfit. That's another reason why I brought the, the Vegas thing earlier. Her outfit just reminded me so much of the Vegas outfits that they put on those girls. Ugh. Anyways, I'm sorry. Again, no judgment. It's just I don't care for that sort of thing. <laughs> so... He's like, oh, 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 there's nothing I can't buy. Credit if you get it. And he makes the biggest mistake. He, he, he watches the girl, not the wheel. Now, considering that Davo literally doesn't have any rules in DS9, they had to invent rules for the game in STO, I'm not sure how that has anything to do with anything, but it is clear that the whole point was he was kept gambling because of his fascination with her, and then, in, as a consequence, he ended up losing. The point here is that Quark does the exact same thing. He watches the girl and ends up getting a bunch of useless salvage. Oh, and then he gets screwed over by Starfleet again. I know this is a weird thing to complain about, but this is not the first or second, and I think or third, time that this has happened where Quark has done something, and Starfleet's basically said, well, this is ours now. And no attempt has ever been made at compensation for that. He bought this stuff for three bars of latinum, or three strips of latinum, or whatever. It wouldn't be that hard for the coffers of, of the Bajorans or the Federation outfit, and you can't tell me the Federation doesn't have currency for this. Just don't even try that. Um, in order to just, like, here, here's, here's the money back. We are basically buying this off you for the price you paid for it. You don't get a profit, but you don't lose out. 
That would be, oh, I don't know, the decent thing to do. Never mind the good business thing to do. This was pointed out by one of my viewers as well many, many episodes ago. The Bajorans and the Federation personnel seem to treat Quark just like a kicking ball. Like like he's just there for them to, to squeeze some stress out by, by abusing him. And I've never understood that, considering how absolutely critical he is to the local economy, which itself is critical to the function of this station. That was actually a plot point in Emissary, never mind episodes hence. So why do they all seem to treat him like this? Uh, sorry, it's just something that bugs me. It's not just because I like Quark. It's because it really feels like they're like, go away. Well, but I bought this. Yeah, you're just a greedy Ferengi. Is this another book cover situation? If he was human, would you give him his three Latinum? Anyways, anyways, anyways. So the Jem'Hadar boy, Dukan Rex, uh, grows up very, very quickly. Now, that's impressive. In fact, that's actually basically magic. Granted, Star Trek doesn't seem to understand how metabolism works in general. Real-life people who are far better at things like chemistry and biology and all that have actually looked at certain Star Trek races and said, okay, this is what would be required to make that actually happen. My favorite, personal favorite is the Vulcans, who would need to eat, uh, let's just say, an enormous amount of food in order to be Vulcans. <laughs> Anyways... <clears throat> So I know that Star Trek just kind of ignores that kind of thing, but considering they flat out bring out the whole metabolism thing, and even call out the fact that he's starving, you'd kind of think that something needs to exist here for these kids to basically gorge themselves in order to grow that quickly. Like, if absolutely nothing else, the base mass has to come from somewhere. A baby cannot just continue to grow on its own, right? If you put a baby in a literal vacuum, that baby will not grow over time, even if we somehow assume like it can breathe. It will just starve. You, right? Now imagine what starvation means. Okay, Starvation means you don't have the fuel to continue functioning, and eventually your body just starts to eat itself. Now we in real life don't have to worry about starvation for a fairly significant period of time, and I know far more about that subject than I like to admit, so let's just move on from this topic. Now imagine your, your, your growth rate is accelerated by a factor of literally thousands how easy do you think it would be to starve under those circumstances? Um, 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 oh god, oh god, oh god. Keep the burgers coming, Superman. Keep the burgers coming. I'm just hitting all the references today. So, I don't know, that's just a little thing. Eh. At 18 minutes and 20 seconds, they reveal that the kid's a Jem'Hadar. Now, they actually do a good job of building up to this. Because up until that moment, and this is something Deep Space Nine does well. They did this back in the episode, The Jem'Hadar. They do this build-up, and then, hey, this is actually something serious. For the most part, up until the 18-minute and 20-second mark, this is just another day. Just, you know, just, just, an, just another Tuesday again. Come on, let's just keep going. Oh, it's a gem hunter, holy crap. And it's a nice reveal. And like I said, oh, excuse me. Ugh, given what we've already established, everything we already know suddenly slides into picture very neatly and smoothly, doesn't it? Because now we know why this child is genetically predisposed towards being combative and being intelligent and growing up very quickly. Because he's literally an engineered soldier. And uh, we also kind of learn why the Jem'Hadar are so damned feared. <laughs> now, Odo mentions that he really wants to help this kid. Now that makes sense to me. He has two very strong motives, and he lays them out both very brilliantly to Sisko. He is guilty... And he knows what it's like to be a lab rat. And so he is motivated, 
really past the point of reason in order to reach out and help this kid, to help Dukan Rex. Now, I like that, and that makes sense. And I have to admit it was nice to see the two reunited in STO. But... I, I, I agree with Kira. I know that sounds horrible, but I think this is one of the very few situations where Odo is letting his idealism get the better of himself. See, here's the thing. I'm actually a very idealistic person myself. I mean, I've played Undertale. <laughs> and, uh, just keep those references coming. And I, I'm not doing it on purpose, I swear. It's just stuff's coming to mind. It's just kind of how my mind works. But idealism, in my experience, always has to be tempered with pragmatism. Now, don't be too pragmatic, and don't be too idealistic, and certainly don't be too cynical. But if you find a nice middle point between the three, you can find something more closely approaching reality. Odo approaches this basically like this will work under all circumstances and nothing could ever possibly go wrong. And what's funny is this is not the last time Odo will do that. He has his ideals that he believes in, therefore this will work. And it doesn't. And he doesn't know how to deal with that. He, and he just keeps trying over and over and over, even up to and including the point where they finally are going. It's like, I, I'll help you. We'll go anywhere. We could go anywhere else in the galaxy. I'm willing to take this journey with you, please. And the only reason Odo is saved from this fate is because Duke on Rex flat out says no. Anyone who is not Jim Hara is my enemy now, if you'll excuse me. <sighs> He goes so far, and I love how they establish this. He is so invested in this that he lets this child invade his privacy. Now that may sound like a minor thing, but this is Odo. He, they, sh they do a good job of showing this. For if on the off chance you don't know Odo as a character by now, he opens the door. There's Kira, and he walks out and immediately closes the door. And she's like, "Hi, you know, I brought you a." a, a plant, a flower plant bush thing, as a housewarming gift. And she's like, I'd like to come in. Now, keep in mind, this is Kira, who Odo is definitely very good friends with and has a very strong bond with. And he still hesitates to let her come in. And it isn't until, like, as they're in there, he has to admit, no, no, you're okay. You're always welcome here. The way he says that is that she's the only one. That's, that's, how, that's how much he values his privacy. And his privacy is so important to him. He even flat out calls that out. I don't have to be embarrassed because Odo doesn't like attention. He never has. He doesn't like people gawking at him. So he can just change into whatever he wants and however he feels like it. He doesn't even use the bucket anymore, which is also A, a nice progression for his character and his development, but B, makes a lot of sense. He finally has his own quarters and everything, and now that he has his own quarters, he can actually use them like other people do. Or rather, that's the wrong way to put that. He gets a benefit out of having quarters as other people get benefit of having quarters. It's just for different reasons because he's an alien. But it still fits, and I still like it. So I enjoy the way they present this, and I enjoy the... How do I put this? I enjoy the intimacy of it. The fact that he uses his old bucket, which was basically the only thing that he owned... He was even tempted to get a nice latinum-coated bucket. You remember that? Back in the day? So it obviously has meaning to him, and he puts the plant in that bucket. That says volumes. But it also then further emphasizes how much he cares about making this work with Dukan Rex. He opens his door to this kid in a way that he, let's be honest with ourselves, probably shouldn't. And then he makes one of two very major mistakes 
in addition to the other mistakes he makes. The first thing he does is he tries very hard, it's the first thing he tries, to remove his control over the kid. Now, the reason I say that is a mistake is because that is the first thing he tries. He does not try to introduce him to ideas or concepts and then slowly have him develop and droid effect and blah, 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 and then remove his control. He tries to remove his control first thing. Now, it's understandable why. But again, that is too idealistic. Imagine for a moment if he had succeeded, if the, if the kid refused to, st to, to start listening to his orders and start doing what he said, and now their only method of controlling him outside of a phaser is suddenly removed from them, and you can kind of see the problems here. The second mistake he makes is the holodeck thing, and again, mostly because it's too early. He goes in, and he tries to do this, and he lets him off the hook for a bit, but then he pulls him back. Now, I do like the idea. You can be as instinctual and as bestial and as violent as you want here. It's safe to do so. I actually personally believe in that very concept. Um, the idea of, uh, how do you praise it? Um, healthy, uh, outlook is the wrong word. <laughs> I can't think of the word. Healthy vents, that's still the wrong word. Uh, healthy direction for certain things, right? This is going to bother me. Healthy ch channels, methods? There's got to be a word I'm looking for. Whatever. I'm probably going to get like 50 people commenting on this. Whatever. If it comes to me, I'll blurt it out. A healthy way to uh, certain parts of be the nature of being a sentient sapient being. Para example. One of the things that I've said many times is that we as human beings are innately violent. Um, now, the level of that violence, the degree of that violence, is debatable because it is my opinion that most of that violence actually comes from specifically a nature of competitiveness. Now, that gets a little more debatable, but that is my belief, that it is our competitive nature that pushes that violent outlook. And thus, if we had some kind of better method of channeling that competitiveness in a way that is a healthier and less disruptive manner, we could still have that nature of ourselves and do it in a way that is not disruptive or negative or horrific or awful or terrible, right? It's the base idea behind the clans over in MechWarrior. I told you, the references are just coming. Um, obviously, Kerensky didn't really know what he was doing, and there's a lot of debate about the clans. Let's just not get into that right now. But the point being, channeling that kind of thing makes sense to me, especially since Oda was basically doing it as a reward system. You get this so long as you do this. And I wanted to point that out specifically as well because Odo's doing the carrot and the stick thing. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with doing the carrot and the stick, really. Uh, it depends on the specific application and the specific circumstances. But I just wanted to point that out because it is a very founder thing to do, isn't it? <clears throat> Anyways, so... Uh... I wanted to give credit really quick to Bumper Robinson. He's the gentleman who plays uh, Duke on Rex, the kid. He, as soon as I heard his voice, I'm like, oh my god, that, that's Hermes boy from Futurama. Just instantly. <laughs> I can't believe I never put that together before. And I went and looked up, and yeah, it's him. Um, and Bumper Robinson's been in other stuff too, uh, voice acting, etc. But I think he does a very good job of his role here. He pretty much nails the exact mentality he needs to. A degree of almost robot-like certainty in what is otherwise an unstable teenager. 
And that's, that's, that's an interesting portrayal, and I do think he nails it very well. I wanted to give him special props for that. Looking at my notes here. Um, I actually think I'm done. I think I've covered everything I really wanted to. The last thing I had was the note about the shroud. But again, it's just weird because I've always sort of mentally assumed that shrouding was a device, like a piece of technology they had. But he, Duke Rex, just does it on his own by himself. It makes me wonder about the nature of that because that's, that's, that's just running up the score a little bit, isn't it? Like, do the Jem'Hadar really need the Shroud? Do, do we really need that? Can't we have, like, another Shroud race who's, like, not as strong, doesn't grow instantly, doesn't have the drug addiction, doesn't have the, you know, all that, but, you know, they instead have the ability to move very, very quietly, like, say, the Suliban or something. Yep, that's my last reference, I swear. Right? I mean, because the Suliban had those genetic engineering things, too, right? Anyways, I did enjoy this episode for, for all of the issues that I have with it. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.